or international organizations, has also promoted this image of isolationism. After his death, Niyazov was rapidly succeeded by the similarly autocratic but more difficult to pronounce Kurban Guli Berde Mukhamedov. Little has changed. Turkmenistan has gone from dependence on exporting gas along pipelines via Russia to a fresh dependence on new Chinese-built pipelines to the east, making Ashgabat desperate to start exporting gas southwards to Pakistan and India under the western-backed but ill-fated TAPI project. What would, however, spur the Central Asian state's development is political reform and liberalization of its state-dominated and corruption-prone economy, none of which seem anywhere near the distant horizon. However, as the Deutsche Bank story shows, this picture of isolation, autarky, and eccentricity is incomplete— Beyond the public view, we find Turkmenistan entangled in transnational networks of business people, global bankers, and cosmopolitan fixers. Germany may not officially be an ally of Turkmenistan or a supporter of its authoritarian practices, but some of its leading companies play major roles in the country's economy and finances. Deutsche Bank has been operating in Turkmenistan since 1994 and holds the accounts of the Central Bank of Turkmenistan. Its representative in Turkmenistan effectively serves as banker to the regime, managing its accounts. Deutsche and another German bank, Comers, as Class A European banks, are the only banks able to offer financial guarantees on the holdings of foreign companies working in Turkmenistan. Other German businesses, including Mercedes and Siemens, and many other foreign companies, such as French construction giant Buig, have established themselves as preferred suppliers to the Turkmen government, due mainly to good relations with the highest-ranking government officials— All these businesses sell in hard currencies, which Turkmenistan needs to purchase foreign technology for its industry and high-end consumer goods for its elite. Offshore accounts are not to be confused with the foreign currency reserves typically held by national banks to pay debt and support foreign exchange stability. They are, however, vital to dictators like Turkmenistan's now-deceased Suparmurat Niyazov, allowing them both to shelter the spoils of power within the international financial system and, in turn, to use these spoils to promote political goals at home and gain influence overseas. Turkmenistan's gas revenues are not simply kept in its local currency, the manat, but are exchanged for dollars through state accounts held offshore— These accounts are off-budget, opaque, and may hold as much as 50% of annual hard currency revenues. They are personally controlled by key regime figures, who apparently use them for both personal gain and political purpose, which often coincide in the form of vainglorious state infrastructure projects and their generous kickbacks. If these offshore revenues declined due to the falling price of gas— as they are likely to have done in recent years, or if these accounts were frozen as part of corruption investigations, the very survival of the regime would be threatened. 
Politically, payments from these accounts fund foreign lobbying and international arbitrations over key state projects. Meanwhile, elites battle over such funds. Indeed, the desire to control them has been a main driver of intra-regime purges in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, post-Civil War politics in Tajikistan, and the deposing of two governments in Kyrgyzstan. This book tells the fascinating stories of Central Asia's Dictators Without Borders. Their tales are at once local and global, and not infrequently gruesome. Far from operating in isolation, even the most closed Central Asian states have embedded their transactions, or at least their most significant transactions, in a set of informal transnational networks with global reach. The so-called local, familial, ethnic, and regional networks of power and wealth in